welcome to episode 80 of The Professor and the Hack. I am the hack, Hugh Rimmington. The Professor, PVO, Peter Van Onselen, joins me. I guess we're taking a look back at the year. We're in that reflective time of year, aren't we, uh, Peter? Yeah, we are. Parliament has now risen for 2020. It was an unusual parliamentary year, to say the least. Uh, the politicians have got a little bit of a way to go yet, a uh, few few meetings here and there as they count down towards the end of 2020. But essentially, uh, other than a, a couple of I's to be dotted and T's to be crossed, the political year that was 2020 is over. So, so here's the thing in this amazing year, the year that will be the subject of books and novels and various treatments like the plague year of London in the 17th century. But this is the thing which strikes me about this year is that it started with... Scott Morrison, not even able to get a handshake, going on holiday to Hawaii, getting busted, looking out of sorts, making bad decisions in a time of real disaster. The year ends with Scott Morrison, the same Scott Morrison, with an approval rating of 66% uh, and with an absolute rails run to an election victory in a place in the pantheon of, of prime ministers of Australia. <laughs> what went so right for Scott Morrison this year? It, look, it's really interesting. Uh, and, and you talk about books. Uh, Wayne Errington, who I've written a number of books with over the years, we did our PhDs together at UWA. We've got a book coming out in next April, uh, tentatively titled How Good Is Scott Morrison? with a question mark. And it really is all about this period with a little bit of a lead up, you know, him winning the last election and, and then uh, a few of the other issues that he had immediately after that before the pandemic year got started. But it's fascinating because you're absolutely right, Hugh. He went from in the doghouse uh, with the way he'd handled the bushfires to now having, you know, near record uh, popularity for a prime minister, certainly in that upper echelon. And, and few could even imagine him losing the next election, particularly against Anthony Albanese, who's got his own issues to end 2020, which we might briefly get to later. But the change that has happened, in many ways, it's reflective of most incumbents the world over have benefited from the pandemic politically, if I could put it in those crude terms, other than the exceptions that prove the rule, you know, the idiocy of Donald Trump or Boris Johnson, uh, you know, now looks terrible because of the mismanagement out of the UK. But generally speaking, most incumbents have done well politically out of it because they've either handled it as well as a country like Australia has, and we saw that with Jacinda Ardern at her recent election with how well New Zealand has handled it, or even if it's been tough going, populations get behind the leader because they want them to succeed rather than fail unless they make a miserable mess of it like Donald Trump. So, you know, in that context, Scott Morrison is as popular as he is despite his poor start because of the bushfires, because Australia does want to get behind its leader and we have done well. So he gets the double whammy positive effect as an incumbent. What is often frustrating to Scott Morrison's opponents is that he got dragged on a lot of issues during the pandemic to where he needed to be by state premiers. Uh, so he wasn't necessarily the one who gets the lion's share of the credit in an actual sense, but he has received it in a political sense. But all of that is by the by. What I find fascinating, Hugh, is that, okay, fine, he's doing well, Australia's done well, credit where it's due, across the spectrum, uh, also recognition of the incumbency power as long as they don't mismanage the situation. But what's fascinating is the worry that some of us had, me included, early on, that he would be more Johnson and Trump than Ardern and, as it's turned out, Morrison, in the way he might manage this, because of 
how he handled those bushfires early on. He comprehensively stuffed that up. And in those early important days of the pandemic, I worried, and I didn't care about the politics because I worried as a nation with the potential death toll of this virus, I worried that he might not be up to it. Now, in the end, this, think, this was this was during the I'm off to the Sharkies. Yeah, uh, the March phase. period. It was it, March was the crucial month because early on he was fumbling a little bit. He was reticent about doing some of the things that he was getting urged to do by state premiers. Now, full credit to Morrison. I don't mean this as a way of taking away credit from him. I actually mean it as the opposite. Full credit that even though there was a reluctance there, he got there. And then we as a nation have done very well and he does deserve credit as a party to that. And his detractors might like to say, well, you know, he only got there because of state premiers. We can say all manner of those sort of things about any moment in time in history. You can pick out particular moments of advice during World War II that Curtin got or during, you know, various other crises that particular political leaders chose to take or, or reject but he's still the prime minister and as a country, we still did well, but I did worry early on. And that was partly because of the bushfires. I saw how badly he did that. And I thought, God, could you have a worse person in charge of this bloody country at such an important time? Well, as it turns out, I think he grew. I do think he grew. There's a lot I don't like about him as a politician, but I do think uh, as a decision maker, uh, he did grow during the pandemic. And even the fact that he was willing to, uh, take part in a national cabinet process that seems to have been a a, a, a triumphant move and in, in retrospect it, it, quite early on it seemed the right move it was the best way to try and bring people together ship politics out of it try not to play off the states against the center mm. um there was some of that but but not make it the main game and and build in that sort of uh, uh just basically the fact that they were talking to each other coordinating things trying to learn the best from each other uh, seemed to work. Yeah, I think that's right. And, and you know, the premiers were still disagreeing and the prime minister, and I know a bit more about this from the research for the book, he was incredibly frustrated behind the scenes. And sometimes he was in the right about that. Sometimes he was in the wrong. But the more important element is that he held it together publicly in a way that frankly goes quite a bit against the way that a lot of people assumed Scott Morrison would react with the, the combination of his temperament and his approach managerially. Uh, he actually tried to avoid a scenario, even when he was getting rolled by state premiers or when he had a particular recalcitrant state premier on a particular issue. He tried to avoid for most of the pandemic until we really did have it under control. And then we saw some of the cracks follow, of course, but for most of it, he avoided the optics of disagreements. You know, he really tried to rein that in. We know that there were enormous tensions at different points between even early on between Gladys Berejiklian and her government and the federal government on things like education policy, for example. But all of that, all of that got reined in um, by Scott Morrison early on uh, and was kept as much as he could keep it behind the scenes. It's funny, isn't it? Because you can look into the detail of any point and find lots to grizzle about. But I don't think that's how voters look at it. They, they tend to take it on the whole and um, and they'll smooth out those bumps. And I think that might account for his high approval rating is that uh, on the whole, we've done far better than anywhere else. I can tell you, yep. having coming back from the United States, there is no better place in the world to be to sit out a pandemic than in Australia. Um, and uh, despite the, the pains in Victoria in particular, um, the, you know, the, here we are. But 
let's not forget, this is the year in which sports rorts blew up. This is the year in which robo-debt had its ultimate comeuppance. We're just now seeing a case where, yet again, the government tends to do this. Right on the point of going to court on a matter, they suddenly fold, the latest one being uh, people who had been medevaced off uh, off Nauru uh, and Manus Island uh, being released now, just as it was about to go to court, presumably the government recognising that they weren't going to win it in court. And there are some 200 people who've been sitting, in some cases, in hotel rooms for two years while this has been resolved. So let's leave that to one side. Sports rorts and robo-debt. Uh, how can a government, or why does a government manage to survive despite having these sorts of, uh, well, they're really revelations of appalling behavior and mismanagement being put in front of the public? Well, I think they only survived because of the pandemic, frankly. Um, You've got this one big thing where Australians want to support their government and their prime minister and where the country has done well, notwithstanding all the pieces in the puzzle that have contributed to that, some of which we've talked about. So that, yeah, you've got this goodwill from that. Okay. And a lot gets forgiven when that's the case. Uh, I mean, this isn't quite analogous, but it's the same as when Bob Hawke was ascendant and a lot was forgiven in his personal life as it was increasingly revealed at particular moments in time. The public wants to believe in their prime minister. So Scott Morrison is getting away with a lot in other spaces. It started with sports rorts that's faded into obscurity because frankly, the scale of disaster that was robo debt makes sports rorts look like nothing. A $1.2 billion class action settlement, the biggest in the country's history, people literally killing themselves because of the pain of this, as it turns out, illegal system, which Scott Morrison was at the heart of setting up as social services minister before becoming treasurer and using it financially before becoming prime minister and relying on it for the promised surplus at the election. So all of these elements, uh, he's right there in the thick of it. Then you've got the land um, purchased at 10 times the value by taxpayers near the second Sydney airport site from a Liberal Party donor, no less. The list does, Hugh, go on and on and on about things that you can have an issue with. The failures in aged care during the pandemic, a number of which had been highlighted for a long time pre-pandemic but not dealt with. Failures in aged care in New South Wales that weren't addressed from the start of the pandemic, such that when they became an issue in Victoria during the second wave, again, a federal responsibility. All sorts of these examples across the policy spectrum that have seen failures by Morrison, arguably his handling of China, even though I quite like him standing up to them, uh, the way that he did it has arguably made the financial lot worse for a lot of people that rely on Chinese trade, whatever you think of the communist regime over there. So there's been a litany of failures, some worse than others by Scott Morrison. But at the heart of the whole thing is a forgiveness from a lot of people and that really would frustrate Morrison. Morrison haters who are listening to me saying this would just be frustrated by it. But mainstream voters who don't come in with that preconceived notion of their prime minister, that other stuff just falls by the wayside because they simply look at the broader handling of the pandemic. And the reason that he's popular and the reason that state premiers are popular is because they're getting dual credit for it. And that's an incumbency factor. The oppositions at state and federal level become irrelevant. Okay, so let me challenge or, or 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 test that one just to a degree. If you set this, if you set 
the pandemic aside, which of course is ridiculous in 2020. But if you, if I take all your arguments on board, is there something uh, Teflon still about Scott Morrison? Um, regardless of those other, does he have that skill? Remember when he came in and, and took over from Turnbull? Some people who are boosting him says he has better political skills than uh, Turnbull. Turnbull would walk into fights he didn't need to have. He'd get into arguments that then went on and on and on. Whereas if there's one thing Scott Morrison is particularly good at is actually fighting on the ground of his own choosing, which he does by using all kinds of tricks and devices not to answer questions, to say he's already answered or addressed the issue when he hasn't, uh, all these sorts of things. Does he have a particular Teflon quality that goes beyond the benefits that might have come politically from the pandemic? Yeah, look, I, I think it's it's a little. I think it's a little more complicated than just to say that he's got the Teflon, because he's got it in certain ways and in certain circumstances. So I think he has it tactically, and he certainly has it tactically over someone like uh, Malcolm Turnbull, who is more strategic in the long run in a policy sense than he is tactical politically in the short run. So the second that Morrison took over from Turnbull, he was able to tactically deliver a defeat of Bill Shorten and beat him at an election unexpectedly. But his Teflon, I think, would have come rearing off him very, very quickly had it not been for the pandemic, because I think that the failures and the public waking up to him, I think, would have been profoundly fast and snowballing, in effect, in the wake of the bushfires, had it not been for... And that tactical value of his might have actually started to work against him strategically over the course of 2020 had it not been for the pandemic. So just imagine Scott Morrison with his plummeting approval ratings post the bushfires, then having lumped on top of that sports rorts, losing his sports minister as happened, suddenly robo-debt becomes a big issue, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. These, you know, the land deal that I already mentioned from the Sydney airport, you know, these litany of, of issues that would have then gone on and on and on throughout 2020 without a pandemic. I think they would have taken a lot of paint off Scott Morrison. And I think he would have been flailing and it would have been a fascinating narrative because people would have said, wow, how did this happen? The guy won an election out of nowhere. He was a tactical genius. Well, this would have been the flip side to that, I think. Um, but without, but with the pandemic that changes. And I guess the other side to it is that labor has been, uh, what well, has been left absolutely in the in the spectator seats while all this has gone on because the pandemic is everything, and they've seemed remarkably weak. Yeah, and have, they haven't laid a single punch, really, uh, all year. Yeah, look, and it's a really interesting one because, of course, during the fires, Anthony Albanese was getting a lot of credit for the way that he managed that, uh, being hands-on without being too political. Uh, and let's throw in, by the way, Hugh, we, reflecting on 2020, this is related to the pandemic, obviously. We haven't even talked about the economy. You know, like, Labor is irrelevant, but you've got a government that is forgiven for chalking up the biggest deficit in history, delivering a recession for the first time in 30 years, all because of the pandemic. Now... There's some truth to that. There's a lot of truth to that. But even within the contours of how they've handled the pandemic in terms of the economic fallout, there is a debate to be had there, but it's not one that people want to have yet. And that might come in a few years' time, depending on how they manage us out of the recession, which we are now technically out of, and how unemployment looks and how growth goes and how payments like JobKeeper and so forth matter once we hit 2021. And no doubt in the second half of this chat, we'll start looking towards 2021. But these are all interesting as well because the economy is now front and centre. And that's another reason to worry about where Labor's at 
politically for, for the Labor Party because they don't do well on issues to do with economic management. And even though the government's presiding over record debts and deficits uh, post-recession that came on during its watch, it's able to say, that's not our fault, that's a pandemic. Uh, and do you trust Labor or do you trust the coalition more to manage out of that? Now, wherever the truth lies, we know the polls say that voters trust the coalition on the economy. So if, uh, if Scott Morrison puts the toweling hat on his head and puts his feet up for the Christmas break, with basically uh, a fairly uh, a clear conscience and tick a year well well won it politically and, and that's not to make light of all the things that have happened within it what does albo do over this summer hopes that he doesn't come back to a fragmented party where he gets challenged i think is the answer to that <laughs> albanese has got some serious issues uh, over the summer that he will face um and he's going to have to deal with those when he comes back because there are fractions on climate change. There are personalities who aren't sure whether he's up to the job. They, however, have a leadership structure, which makes it hard to get rid of him. I think Tanya Plibersek is now his biggest threat because she's got a popularity in the membership uh, and a potential emerging popularity in the party if the right decide to back her over Albo. But Albanese is now just fighting to retain his job. Well, let's uh, take a break and see how things might shape up for 2021, because uh, if this was a, a year full of um, full of events, then 2021 doesn't look like it's going to be anything much, uh, much south of that. Uh, we'll take a quick break, PVO. Be back in just a moment. Hey, Husey here. You can't get enough of Husey. We have a problem. Channel 10's hit show. Well, now there's more to get. We've got a podcast. Find it at your favourite podcast app. Well, welcome back to this summer edition, I suppose you can say, of The Professor and the Hack. We've been reflecting on the year 2020, a year that most of us are quite happy to shut the door on. But 2021 has much awaiting PVO. Let's start with this one. Are we going to have an election in 2021? Well, the Prime Minister says we're not. Uh, The Prime Minister says that uh, we told his party room that there won't be an election in the second half of 2021. It will be as scheduled in the first half of 2022, he doesn't want to go to the polls early. He doesn't think that's necessary. Now, you take that with a grain of salt because if he sees political advantage in going early, that's, again, an incumbency advantage that prime ministers have. They can do that. And it would also bring the electoral cycle back to where it usually is. That is to say, a late election in a year followed by a mid the following year transition of the Senate, uh, which is more common than than the March or February election, uh, much less an election around May as it was last time. So uh, he says there won't be an early election, but if he needs it politically, I think there absolutely will be an early election, but we'll only know a matter of months out. So he's got um, a reshuffle. Uh, so he goes in there with a slightly refreshed front bench. If you look at Labor as they gear up, they potentially, as you've just hinted before our break, potentially looking at something rather greater than a reshuffle. What are your thoughts on whether Albo will lead Labor, Anthony Albanese will lead Labor into the next election? Uh, look, I think he's more likely to than not, uh, but I have no confidence that he will get them there. Uh, the reason I say that that he's more likely than not is there, there needs to be a consensus found in the Labor Party if they're going to try to take him out. The right and the left need to come together. And there are a number of challenges, but no clear one challenger. So 
Chris Bowen would like the job, but like Bill Shorten, both of them are tainted from the last election. Shorten is out because he's had two cracks at it. If he comes back, it would be well down the track. Chris Bowen probably has to sit out one election before he can be seriously considered as the right-wing candidate. Richard Miles is the deputy leader and he's the leading right figure out of Victoria now, but he's no one's seriously talking about him yet as a leadership option. Uh, Burke thinks he's a chance, but really he's not, certainly not anytime soon. Jim Chalmers is the great white hope from Queensland, uh, who could actually deliver Queensland seats the way Kevin Rudd did in 2007, but he's not ready yet. Uh, he's a little while off being ready, and he probably knows that. So he, he's got time on his side, would be the way to put it. Tanya Plibersek, I think, is the biggest threat, um, and probably the biggest threat to Morrison as well. When you talk to Liberals, they're more worried about her than anyone else, the contrast that she would create, uh, the fact that she's got good name recognition without a taint uh, that a lot of people with good name recognition can have. But all of that... Uh, her, her biggest issue is that she's in the left, same as Albo, that splits the left vote. And if she can't get anyone on the right to come on board with her as an option, she's gone before the contest even starts. And all of this, Hugh, sits under the umbrella of their new leadership rules, uh, which there's a bit of ambiguity about this because the new leadership rules can be knocked out by a vote of caucus, um, but it's a bad look to do that. Whereas if you follow the new leadership rules, you need to get a certain number of signatories, you need to create a ballot process, you then have to poll the members and they get 50% of the say before you then have the caucus having the other 50% of the say. It's a laborious process if you're going to be trying to politically assassinate a leader uh, in a way that minimises the fallout and the damage on the other side of it. So what does all of that add up to? It all adds up to the fact that if Albo goes, he probably is part of the decision-making to go rather than blast it out. And I just can't see him being prepared to do that, much less for someone like Tanya Plibersek. She's the best chance of winning the membership vote against him because she's much more popular in the membership than all these right-wing figures like a Chris Bowen or any of them. But, uh, you know, does she have the oomph to be prepared to do that to her factional colleague, Anthony Albanese? I don't know about that. It's an interesting point you raise there because if you look at the sort of the uh, the Labour leaders that we've seen um, become prime minister, they have all expressly wanted that job. No one has been left doubting at all, whether it's a Hawke, mm. a Keating, a Kevin Rudd. You know, even Bill Shorten was picked out very early on, even before he got into parliament as a potential future Labour leader. Uh, so they'd signaled early that they were going to go hard for this job and they wouldn't rest without giving it every crack. I have never seen over the years that, um, you know, pulsating will to power coming from Tanya Plibersek. Competent as she is across a range of issues, pleasant as she is as a personality. Um, she just doesn't strike me as the kind of person who will, you know, tear down, you know, tear down the walls of the castle to, you know, to get the prize. Your thoughts? That's part of the issue, isn't it? That's part of the issue is like, I actually could imagine her in the job presenting a fascinating contrast and challenge for Scott Morrison, because does Scott Morrison muscle up hard against her? And in doing so, risk looking like a bully uh, with, you know, taking on tenure, you know, with, with the gender difference. Or uh, does he pull back from some of that aggressive style, but in doing so, lose some of his oomph uh, that helps him in the short-term political battle? Uh, I think she presents an interesting contrast. Now, it, it could go well for her in the mould of a Jacinda Ardern, uh, which would require her to probably take over late 
uh, I think, val- benefit from the name recognition she has, but look as a become a change agent stylistically. I don't know if the times suit her for that, to be honest. Um, but she could also go down in a screaming heap uh, if she faces gender discrimination in the eyes of some voters, albeit unintentional, uh, if the party's not united, if she's seen, exactly as you say, Hugh, in, in not having the hunger for the job. So it's a risky play. But I do know this, and this is important, the government wants Albanese to get to the election. And that's always an interesting indicator in and of itself, if you're Labor deciding who you want leading you. And they fear their senior strategists in the government fear Tanya Plibersek more than anyone else. Uh, they fear in the longer term, Jim Chalmers, but they don't fear him in the short term. Interesting. So... <clears throat> Interesting point on on what we said in the last little session about how uh, Scott Morrison has emerged at the end of the year doing so well, essentially because he's done well against an external challenge, that being the pandemic. Now, 2021, mm. these vaccines should be through uh, the, the sense of that being a crisis should uh, hopefully start to fade as vaccines are effective, as we start to see numbers internationally go down, as travel reopens, as some parts of the economy, the tourism sector and so on, uh, start to get new life back into them, the planes start flying again, all that kind of stuff. But I wonder whether that will mean that there is not an external threat against which Scott Morrison can stand and therefore get the country uniting against him? Or will China, very conveniently to Scott Morrison, emerge and continue to be this sort of bullying entity um, so that there is a rally around the prime minister? If the public in general feels as if China is being just just a bit of a pain in the ass and Mm -hmm. also doing us damage as, as great power bullies do, um, will that work for Scott Morrison in 2021? I think it could politically. Uh, this is an interesting one because I, I'm sort of, I've said this before, I'm, I'm sort of on Scott Morrison's side with him standing up to a bully in China because I just dislike intensely the fact that they are an authoritarian dictatorship that they murder their own citizens, that they don't respect the rule of law, that they project the way that they do as a non-democracy, as a threat, therefore, to the region and to the wider world. So I'm all for prime ministers and presidents the world over in democratic nations standing up to a country like China. However, in the domestic political environment, I'm well aware that it's probably, and and economic environment, I'm well aware that there are more deft ways to handle China. Uh, And I think objectively, He's probably mishandled it to some extent. He could have had a Peter Dutton out there swinging rather than do it himself, minimising the fallout, continuing the glad handing that goes on such that it doesn't ruin a lot of these trade relationships that are now already in the process of destroying sections of Australian industry. Now, I'm willing to take all of those risks. It's easy to say from the cheap seats because I like standing up to China, but a more deft operator in that role probably would handle this quite differently but you see, I think Scott Morrison, he's not, he's not a bull in a china shop here. He knows what he's doing. This isn't that he lacks skills on the international arena as a diplomat, albeit I think he does lack skills on the international arena as a diplomat. The reason that he's standing up to China is because I think he sees the domestic political advantage. He sees that there are a lot of Australians who probably feel the way I do and like their prime minister telling China where to shove it, notwithstanding 
the impact that that can have indirectly in a whole bunch of ways that could have otherwise been minimised, but still take a hardline stance, just not do it so bullishly. So I think that Scott Morrison knows all of that. And I think he sees the political advantage in it, the tactical political advantage, which probably serves him well at the next election for all the reasons you mentioned, Hugh, as it being a new issue that he can fight off. But in the medium to long term, we'll see where it leaves us. Does it result in people like wine growers, uh, you know, barley growers, uh, you know, the coal industry, which is seeing ships sort of parked up there uh, unable to unload or or, or whatever else the Chinese come up with in the months ahead? If they, in all those industries, perceive that Scott Morrison is perhaps allowing there to be an extra bit of ginger in the relationship with China because he sees a domestic political advantage, uh, they'll you know, they traditionally come from the conservative sides of politics. But is there a moment there where there's a risk for Scott Morrison that if he, you know, if he, if he pokes the panda or the dragon, whatever image you want for China, too much for his own political advantage, then the Chinese attacks on us through our trade and through, you know, all mm-hmm. our products uh, start to become a problem for him? Yeah, look, I, I think there are elements of that, but I think that that manifests itself over time Uh, So in the short term, he's okay. So, you know, industries taking a whack or giving a whack to the prime minister because of his handling with China kind of only amplifies to the mainstream who likes him standing up to them that he is standing up to them. But over time, those industry whacks because of the effect on the economy then has the flow on impact, doesn't it, on jobs and on economic growth and on people's standards of living. And over time, and I'm talking over years, the impact of that might then be something that rebounds on the Prime Minister, but by then it might be rebounding on a different Liberal Prime Minister or Liberal Opposition Leader. Uh, And Scott Morrison has ridden off into the sunset, having successfully won an unwinnable election, successfully managed us through the pandemic, successfully won the follow-up election against whomever is leading the Labor Party. Uh, He might leave a steaming economic mess behind, but he will have been seen by a lot of voters as having been strong on China and it becomes somebody else's problem. It all depends how long he lasts as a leader, I suppose. Yeah, well, I mean, already you'd say that he started to build a, a legacy of, of, of some interest uh, for future writers like yourself, I'm sure. Um, one thing we haven't talked about is the old, um, the old debate in Australia about industrial relations. And it looks as if 2021 is going to see a renewed argument about... Uh, you know, what are the terms under which people get employed in Australia? Uh, what are the safeguards in it? Because we certainly saw on March the 23rd, when suddenly the vast queues sprung up around Centrelinks around the country, just what it meant to be in casual employment in Australia, uh, when things go into reverse. Uh, it seems to some, so the argument now goes, as far as I understand it, is that there needs to be more flexibility built into it so that uh, that will generate more employment, that's the government's argument, but with the potential that, uh, that employees could wind up with less pay. How's that shaping as an argument for 2021? And where do the politics land? Well, I think, I think the politics of IR invariably almost always land in favour of the Labor Party. Uh, and I think Scott Morrison knows that. I mean, that's why within 24 hours of 
of Christian Porter announcing some of these IR changes being on the cards, he was already giving indications that he was happy to walk back from a number of them and, and using the excuse of negotiation with the Senate and crossbench to get it into law. Um, but he was well aware, Scott Morrison, I think that they might have jumped the gun on some of these changes. They're not unreasonable in and of themselves. We don't have time here to go into the policy ins and outs, but it is an interesting space how much certainty uh, versus how much remuneration casuals get or deserve in the context of where the modern workforce is at. It's also true that the government for years and years have sat on the issue of what to do about the increasing casualization of the workforce in the wake of the gig economy and all the rest of it. So that's a broader issue as well. But when it comes to the politics of IR, uh, as soon as this debate opened up in the final days of, of the 2020 sitting period, you could see the, the eyes light up of Labor politicians, that they were being gifted a chance at a comeback in the political debate in 2021 and, and able to roll the IR debate into the unemployment, into the post-recession need to grow, into the challenges that a lot of people are going to face as JobKeeper comes off and as JobSeeker payments reduce. Uh, and, and it is actually a 50-50 debate. There's lots of room in there for why in an analytical discussion, maybe some of what is being recommended by the government needs to be considered seriously as opposed to dismissed as an assault on workers' rights. But in the, you know, and, and Morrison is the last person who can complain about this, in the theatre of a political stoush, it gives Albo and Labor something to grip onto uh, in the same way that Morrison is so good at gripping onto tactical political issues and using them against the other side of politics. And I think that's why quite quickly we saw Morrison try to downplay this rather than upscale it. He's not an ideologue. He's certainly not an ideological IR zealot in the way that someone like Howard or Peter Reith were in their day. Uh, so as a result, uh, he's, he's tempering some of what's already been proposed. And frankly, what's been proposed is nothing of the order of what work choices was anyway, even if it's been billed that way. The only ism is pragmatism. This is a man who wants to win elections and uh, <laughs> measure his successes by those uh, scorecards. Um, look, we've got, uh, we're almost out of time, but uh, often after, well, we haven't really had a year like 2024, well, I can't remember one. We hope for a much more settled year in 2021. There's so much work to do. We've got to get the economy back on its feet. Uh, we hope that internationally, with Trump out of the way, things will be calmer. I can't help feeling we're in for another disrupted year next year. I think China and a Biden administration are bound to have some sort of clashes. We still won't have vaccines across the whole population now for some months. So there's still some limits on what goes on, particularly around uh, travel. If there was a, a single thing that you would point to for 2021 that we should be watching out for, uh, what would it be? I think it would be complications with the rolling out of the vaccine versus the reality uh, of the ongoing effect of the virus uh, in communities right around the world. So therefore, continuing travel disruption, continuing economic disruption. Uh, I, I think we can't count chickens, Hugh, uh, when it comes to putting the coronavirus behind us in 2021. That's, that's my big uh, fear and prediction for the year ahead. Wow. Well, for mine, I would just say we just have to watch China. Uh, they're incredibly bullish. There is um, an enthusiasm for the fight that we're seeing in the high offices of China, and that could go anywhere. It could certainly have effects on us for trade. Mm. That's, I suspect that's pretty much a given. And they've plainly shown a willingness to punish those who they perceive are, uh, are not showing them sufficient respect. 
and they're very sensitive on the subject of respect. So I think that's going to continue to be a bumpy ride for us and possibly for the rest of the world in 2021. Uh, PVO, great to talk to you this year. Stay well, get a good break. Uh, we look forward to chatting again in 2021. Likewise, Hugh, look after yourself and your loved ones. Uh, goodbye, everyone. We'll talk again soon. Fantastic. And uh, can I also recommend, seeing you've gone so far with us this year, thank you for, for being loyal to the professor and the hack. Uh, and can I, can I let you know that there's another podcast on the 10 News First Person uh, 10 Speaks list. Go and check it out. It's called The Conspiracy Virus. It's a project that I've been working on with Olivia Rosenman and Anthony Lowenstein about uh, where conspiracy theories come from, how they generate. The first episode is up now, dealing with anti-vaxxers, and there are other episodes to roll out. Uh, thanks for your company. Stay safe. You have been listening to a 10 News First podcast for 10 Speaks.